Support for WERU comes from the Maine Jewish Film Festival, celebrating 22 years of providing film programs in Bangor, Rockland, Waterville, Brunswick, Lewiston, and Portland. The festival will be held from March 9th through March 17th. Information and ticket purchases at mjff.org. The queen of hip-hop soul, Mary J. Blige, just wailing on one of U2's most iconic tracks. And with Bono and the crew doing backup, now that's a cover. One love, one life, one radio station, one undercover. Fridays, 2 to 4 p.m. on WERU-FM, 89.9 in Blue Hill. One love. WERU is made possible by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther, is up next. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the third program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about the Electoral College, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll talk about the Electoral College, its historical origins, the founder's intent, the practical implications for modern American politics, and some proposals for reform, including the national popular vote. Um, We'll be taking listener questions by email today, later in the program, so stand by to join the conversation. You can email us at downeast at lwvme.org. Put DF in the subject line, and we'll try to get your question on the air. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum this morning. Um, Let me introduce our guests. Uh, Joining us in the studio today is Mark Brewer. Mark is a professor of political science at the University of Maine. He's been with us on the show a few times before. Welcome back, Mark. Thank you very much. Um, We're going to have another guest join us by phone in a few minutes. That will be Jamie Raskin. Representative Raskin is a professor of law at American University Washington, Washington College of Law and a U.S. congressman representing Maryland's 8th District. Um, We'll be welcoming him about quarter after the hour. And then later in the program, we'll also be joined by Patrick Rosenstiel. Pat is the CEO of Ainsley Shea, a Minneapolis-based public relations firm working to advance the national popular vote. Patrick is also an active and influential Republican activist. So that will bring another voice into the conversation. And we'll be welcoming Pat just after the half hour. The Maine State Legislature is right now debating a measure that would have Maine join the National Popular Vote Compact. Five times in our country's history, we've elected a president of the United States who was not favored by a majority of the American people. And that's happened twice in the last 20 years. As Al Gore quipped, You win some, you lose some, and then there's that little-known third category, um, which, you know, obviously he was one. So why do we have the Electoral College anyway? Is it still fulfilling the founders' intent? Is it time for us to evolve? Um, And because Mark's a political scientist and historian, I want to put it to you to kick off the show. Mark, why do we have the Electoral College? What were the founders thinking? Well, it's an interesting question, and it's one that uh, is actually uh, not as easy to answer as you might think. Uh, it's also uh, it's also one that is uh, relatively uh, 
the, the, the notes on that debate are incomplete from, from the federal convention. I mean, of course, uh, the federal convention is conducted in private, and the delegates, um, you know, kind of pledge themselves to secrecy, which they keep uh, for the most part uh, during the convention. Uh, we do not have a complete set of notes or records uh, from the convention. We've got a series of small, more incomplete notes. The, the largest, most complete set we have of, of course, is, of course, taken by James Madison, uh, primary architect, at least, of the first the first plan that's presented, the Virginia plan. Um, but even Madison's notes are not terribly complete uh, because the convention splits into subcommittees at various points, and Madison can only be in one place at one time. There's also some recent scholarship making the case that Madison may have revised his notes uh, over the years uh, before they were released to the public to make himself look better. Uh, that all aside... That uh, would be human nature. That would be human <laughs> nature for sure, which Madison was a very astute student of, so that wouldn't be terribly surprising. But if you you look at Madison's notes, uh, you will see uh, a fair amount of uh, debate surrounding not only what the chief executive should look like, but also how to select that person or at various points in the convention persons, because it's not always clear that it's going to be one. But... Once it's seemingly settled that we're going to have a single-person chief executive, uh, you, you know the discussion really turns to how should this person be selected. And early on in the convention, uh, certainly James Wilson, who you could make the argument is the second most influential person in the design of the Constitution besides Madison – makes the case very explicitly and pretty passionately for a direct popular vote of the So president. that was discussed. Oh, it was absolutely discussed, and, and Wilson clearly preferred that. And Madison's on the record saying that in principle, right, and in, a, in an ideal world, that he thinks that would be the way to go as well. Uh, however, uh, Madison points out that, that that method of selection would be very difficult to get through the convention, in particular among southern state delegations. And um, so then the, the mood kind of turns towards uh, Congress, the legislature, selecting the chief executive. And it's actually voted on a number of times early in the convention. It seems to have approval. But over – as the convention drags on, as we get closer towards completion into July, mid, late July, the, those opponents of congressional election – uh, be, start to become more influential. And the argument there is that having a congressional election of the president will make the executive too beholden to the legislature. And it, it jeopardizes the separated institutions, yeah. the sharing powers that, that Locke and Montesquieu think are so important. And so the tide starts to turn. We're going to go away from that. And so Wilson uh, and a few others bring back up the possibility, well, what about you know direct popular election? And at that point, there's a number of arguments lodged against it, right? Uh, one, of the, one of the arguments lodged against it is, well, we, we can't have that because uh, what we'll end up with is um, voters who don't know enough about kind of national level figures voting for kind of the influential people, you know, their favorite son candidates from their own state. Um, and so, therefore, they won't be voting uh, for people who are appropriate for the office. So that's one argument. Uh, a second argument uh, that's posed against uh, direct popular election is uh, the idea that um, doing doing so really kind of takes away any role for the states in this process. And let's remember we're coming from a system under the Articles of Confederation where the states are dominant. You have to get whatever you come out with approved somehow. Um, theoretically, it should go before the Continental Congress. Of course, the founders come up with their own approval mechanism, but they know they have to get it approved. And taking away any kind of state role raises practical concerns of approval, and it also raises, at least for some of the founders, some principal concerns, mm -hmm. right? Um, but then there's also, you know, the, the elephant in the room at the entire convention is, is always the question of slavery, right? And, and how is that? Uh, it, it's It's well known among the delegates that that question really can't come onto the table because doing so blows the convention up. But that doesn't mean that it it's absent from debates. It really is involved in, in most, if not all, of the debates in some subtle, in some cases not so subtle ways. Well, and I wanted to ask you about that because we shared this article yeah. in advance of um, the, the show today. I'll read 
Amar, who is a very influential constitutional scholar at Yale, um, was interviewed in Vox after the 2016 election, and he proposed that the rationale for the Electoral College, or at least its most enduring um, effect, has been grounded in slavery. And is there some argument there? Well, I, I think that he's, defi- he's definitely bringing to kind of public attention an element of the Electoral College that gets very little, if, if virtually no attention, uh, when it's discussed publicly and even in some kind of um, scholarly settings, is that slavery definitely plays a role in there. And there's, there's no doubt that southern states recognize that if we go to a system of direct popular vote, they've got a large percentage of their population are slaves that they view as property and will not allow to vote, that's going to disadvantage them in a presidential selection process. So but still they're counted in terms of economic weight. You know, the states get the value of their economic um, the three-fifths rule. Yeah, well, absolutely. And the three-fifths compromise recognize, you know, I mean, crucial crucial point in the, in the Constitutional Convention, which allows it to move forward successfully, you know, southern states get the benefit of slaves counting as three-fifths of a person when um, seats in the United States House of Representatives are allocated. And obviously, the number of seats you get in the House plays into your electoral college yeah. votes. So, yes, there's, there's no doubt uh, that s- slavery comes into play in the design of the Electoral College. I, I don't know that I'd be willing to go as far as to say that it's the primary motivating factor for the convention. Um, I, think, I think that's maybe a, a bridge too far based on the evidence we have, but at the same time, is it part of what's going on here? A Absolutely, big part? Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, Wilson's view that a direct popular vote for president would be the way to go, and, of course, that view of popular democracy was not embraced by the founders in a couple of ways. But in some of those ways, like popular election of U.S. senators, for example, we have sort of evolved towards a more democratic system of um, conducting elections. Is the Electoral College a way in which we should now similarly perhaps evolve? I think that I think that's a, a very important question, and certainly there's a, a wide variety of thoughts on that issue. Um, I think that a direct national popular vote for president is, is would certainly be more democratic than the electoral college. There's there's no doubt about that. Uh, that being said, for me personally, uh, I do see some value in the element of federalism that is in play in the electoral college and wanting to preserve some role for states. Uh, but the question then you have to ask yourself is: Does that trump? you know, democracy, one person, one vote. And I, I, that's a very important question, and I think different people will answer it differently. Uh, but it's, a, it's a, it clearly uh, the Electoral College as it currently stands is not entirely a democratic mechanism. What are the, some of the – I know we're going to talk quite a bit about the national popular vote on the show today, and I think both of our other guests are going to be kind of focusing on that as a potential solution. But before they come on – what are some of the other reform ideas that are being considered or talked about? Well, certainly, I mean, one idea that's talked about is has its origins, at least in part, in the state of Maine, right? I mean, Maine and Nebraska are the two states that, is, that do things differently in terms of how they assign their electoral college votes. And states are free to assign those votes however they wish, right? I mean, that is not a common misconception is, oh, this is laid out in the Constitution. The federal Constitution is not. Um, States are free to assign those electors and choose those electors however they see fit. Um, In Maine, of course, we um, select our electoral, award our electoral college votes based on uh, the winner of the statewide popular vote for president gets two uh, electoral college votes, the two that come from our two union members of the United States Senate. And then the other two are awarded based on the winner of the congressional district. And uh, we saw in the 2016 election, Maine split its electoral college votes. For the first time in history. For the first time in history. Uh, Donald Trump won Maine's second congressional district. Um, Hillary Clinton won the state and the first CD. So she got three. Trump got one. Nebraska also does it this way. And they did split... For Obama, I can't remember if it was 08 or if it was 12, but um, he won in one of the races, I believe, the House district around Omaha. Um, I, I, that's, cert- that's something that's on the table. Uh, it's something I think is worth 
considering. Now, but the, wouldn't that require sort of concerted action, like no state wants to be the first to go. California wouldn't go before Texas. Texas wouldn't go before California. I mean, don't we almost need a compact even to do that uh, so we all go at once? Well, I, you don't need a compact in the same way that you would need a, the interstate vote compact. I mean, a compact would make it easier to accomplish, but you don't need one. Um, that being said, I think you're right. States are going to be reluctant to be the first one to jump. I mean, the two states that have jumped so far are both small states, and I mean, they're not irrelevant, but they're not terribly significant either. I mean, it's a difference between Maine and Florida making such a jump, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but if if your interest is, if at least part of your interest is convincing people that their vote matters, right, and so to help increase participation, which is a, a laudable goal, I think this might actually do more uh, than the interstate vote compact would do because here people generally tend to group themselves with like-minded people politically. Um, so I think they are if I'm a, if I live in a conservative district um, in a state that's democratic, I don't participate. This system, I might. Well, we have um, our other guests joining us right now. So let me take a little station break and introduce him. This is the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. My name is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine, and our topic today is the Electoral College, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, In the studio with me this morning is Mark Brewer, professor of political science at the University of Maine, and joining us right now by phone is Jamie Raskin. He's a professor of law at American University Washington College of Law and a U.S. congressman representing Maryland's 8th District, um, taking a few minutes out of his busy schedule today to join us. Thank you, Jamie, for coming on the show with us today. Oh, I'm so delighted to be with you guys. Thank you. Um, I just want to let listeners know that we're taking their questions by email. You can email us at downeast at lwvme.org and put DF in the subject line, and we'll try to get your question on the air. So, Jamie, we've been talking before you got on about the Electoral College, the founders' intent, and whether that intent is still um, valid today or still even being affected today by the Electoral College. Because constitutional law is your background, why don't you give us a few sentences on that before we launch into the National Popular Vote Compact? Well, the Electoral College is clearly a relic, and it's totally obsolete in terms of Um, democratic beliefs and values and practices today. And one great sign of that, of course, is that America spends hundreds of millions of dollars a year exporting democracy abroad, and we never even dream of trying to export the Electoral College, and no right-thinking country would ever think of adopting that as its plan. Um, Most, the vast majority of Americans believe that we should be electing the president the way we elect U.S. senators, representatives in Congress, mayors, everybody else, whoever gets the most votes wins. But under the Electoral College, of course, in just two of the last five elections, we've had the popular vote loser carry in the Electoral College. Jamie, um, are, are the modern demographics exaggerating that problem? Like, are we going to see that more often now than we have in our past history? Well, it, it's possible, um, you know, because I suppose um, states become more like themselves over time. That is, you know, um, New York and California are going to become bluer and Texas. um, Well, I don't know if Texas is going to become redder. But I mean, I I guess the the suggestion is is that the less populous states, which have uh, become locked up red territory, um, are... um, not growing as fast as the blue states, then it might exaggerate that. I, You know, I don't know the answer to that. The problem is when you get into that kind of analysis, it makes it seem partisan, when in fact it's not a partisan proposition. All we really care about is that the candidate who gets the most votes wins. When I uh, originally introduced the National Popular Vote Plan in Maryland uh, back in 2007, people would get me behind closed doors and say, now just tell me the truth. Does this help the Democrats or does it help the Republicans? And I would say it helps whichever candidate gets the most votes. You can't game the system, you know? And so basically it establishes the principle of the popular vote winner wins the election. And also um, candidates and campaigns should campaign all over the country. I mean, this is the serious problem with the electoral college as it works today 
three quarters of the states are complete flyover country. And a lot of them are big states like Texas, which is considered red, or California and New York, which are considered blue. Some are tiny states like Rhode Island, which is considered safely blue, or you know North Dakota, which is considered safely red. Um, but it's just a pure accident of how many Democrats and Republicans there are in each state that you get a handful of states, which are the swing states, and everybody knows what they are, Ohio, Florida, a handful of others. And the entire presidential campaign is conducted in, in those, those states, states and yeah. everybody else is bypassed. So let me um, ask you, because we didn't really get into it on the first 15 minutes, to explain to our listeners exactly how the National Popular Vote Compact would work. Well, the, the principle is simple. Uh, whichever um, candidate gets the most votes nationally in the popular vote wins the election. The mechanics of it are that um, the states uh, enter the compact and we agreed to cast our electoral college votes for the winner in the national popular vote. But of course, that only becomes activated and binding when there are enough states in the coalition to equal 270 in the electoral college. So when it would work every time, then the compact is activated and um, that will be our bridge to presumably just getting rid of the electoral college and then moving to uh, a direct national vote as a constitutional matter. So uh, in the coverage about the National Popular Vote Compact, I, I sometimes see it said that its constitutionality is in question. And because you're a constitutional lawyer, what do you think? But I don't think it's in question at all because um, the, the electoral college provision uh, in Article 2 leaves it to the states to determine how to appoint their electors. So some states over the course of American history have named actual individuals and said these people are going to be the electors. Um, some have said we're going to do it by congressional district. Some have said we're going to appoint special electoral commissions. And some have said with most states today, we will have a winner-take-all system, although even today your state, Maine and Nebraska, do it by a congressional district, all of which just underscores it's up to the state legislatures themselves how to appoint the electors. So that gives the legislatures the power to say, we're going to appoint our electors by giving them to the winner of the national vote. Is there a constitu constitutional question between the validity of the compact itself? Um, I don't think so. Um, the, uh, states have been given the power to form interstate agreements, and there are uh, hundreds of them that are uh, in power today. They have uh, the force of contracts. Um, and um, there's never been one that's been struck down, you know, by the Supreme Court. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'm not seeing any valid constitutional uh, objections to it. And, um, you know, this is clearly going to be the pathway to make the change that we need. You know, this is the way that most of our principal electoral reforms have taken place. They've bubbled up from the states. You know, before we had the 19th Amendment, um, lots of states, including Maine, gave women the right to vote. And then finally, that pushed Congress to act and then to amend the Constitution. And it was the same thing with the 17th Amendment with direct election of U.S. senators. Um, used to be the state legislatures appointed senators, and the states said, no, uh, this isn't a good way of doing it. We're going to go ahead and appoint uh, the people who are elected popularly in our states. And then that ended up uh, resulting in the 17th Amendment in 1913. So the states have generally been the germinators of this kind of fundamental political change, and the states are doing it again, and we're making great momentum in terms of moving towards the national vote this way. It sounds as though you really prefer and see the end state goal as a constitutional amendment. Is that fair to say? I, I think eventually it's going to be the cleanest way to do it. Um, but, you know, what this allows us to do is to have the states form the compact. And if people decide for some reason, no, uh, it's really better to have the fragmented electoral college system uh, from before, then we would simply be able to, uh, through the procedures of the compact, undo the compact and go back. But I do think it is a bridge to getting to a constitutional amendment that would eventually just abolish the electoral college. Jamie, are you up to the minute on how many states have joined the compact already? 
Well, it's changing so quickly, and unfortunately, I don't have that information right in front of me. I know, uh, I think we're at a dozen, including the District of Columbia, and that includes some very big states like California and New York and some medium-sized states like my state, Maryland or Hawaii, and then some some of the the tinier ones like Rhode Island. Um, But I know that there are a lot this week that are acting, and I know that national popular vote legislation is sitting on the desks of a number of governors. And um, before you came on, Mark and I were talking about some of the other reforms that are on the table. And um, I think James Foley is a a scholar of electoral methods, and he did an article that actually favored converting to a ranked choice voting system in a proportional system of electors. Um, We've also been talking about having all the states move in the direction that Maine and Nebraska are in with... um, you know, some divisions by congressional district or partial allocations of electors. What do you think about some of those other ideas? Uh, I don't like that, um, and i tell you why. Um, basically, you're going to gerrymander presidential elections the way you gerrymander congressional elections. Oh. So, you know, if the vast majority of House districts are gerrymandered for Republicans or Democrats, those districts won't be in play, and then you'll have maybe... 30 or 40 districts in play, and those will be contested. But in any event, it doesn't vindicate the principle of popular election because you could still have people getting elected president who've lost by a million or two million votes in the event that they're able to achieve a majority of the gerrymandered House districts. So look, we, we don't have to be too clever about this. We know how to have a popular election for president. Most of the countries in the world that elect presidents do it like that, and that's how we elect governors. I mean, in, in Maine, you don't elect governor by, um, you know, county by, um, you know, getting one vote per county. Although I do have a friend who grew up in Maine who sang me the song about all the different counties of Maine, which I always liked that song. But um, you, there's no reason to do it like that. Why not, you know, uh, respect the principle of one person, one vote? Mark, do you have a question you'd like to put to Jamie? I, I do, and, and it's, it taps into his constitutional law expertise, which I, I certainly do not have as a, I'm a more of a parties and elections specialist. But I, I did uh, a few years back read some of the Supreme Court cases involving interstate agreements or compacts, and, and the court, has, as you pointed out, has always um, allowed those compacts to stand as, as legal. But in some of those decisions, they have put the qualifier on there that said that if a compact were entered into that served to advantage those states that entered the compact over those who did not enter or advantage the states who entered the compact at the expense of the federal government, that that, that arrangement would likely be in violation of the Constitution. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Well, um, constitutionally, it doesn't implicate a federal interest because under the Electoral College provision itself, Uh, The Supreme Court has found that the states have a plenary power over appointment of the electors. So what it implicates is just the interests of this state and that state and all of the states cumulatively, but not an independent federal interest. Um, So I I don't think there's a problem there. So what if what if we had some states that did not enter into the compact and they brought suit how how do you think that do you think the court would would weigh that or or was that something that's just not a concern well you know could that's like saying well could the other states the other 48 states to maine because you appoint your electors by congressional district um but we have no well i don't know if it's the same thing maine's not entered into a compact with anyone well but but you have you've developed a particular system that's one of your own right right and so but put it this way, what's the cause of action that a state would have against other states deciding to appoint their electors according to the national popular vote? Mm-hmm. I Jane, mean, in other words, does a state have a constitutional right not to have other states respect the majority vote principle? I don't think so. Jamie, I know you've got to leave us in a couple of minutes, and I um, I want to make sure you have a few minutes to just sum up your argument in favor of the national popular vote um, before you get off. So go ahead. Well, you know, it's not too complicated. Um, You know, we want every vote in America to count in a presidential election. We want every vote to count equally. We want the campaigns and the candidates to have to think about 
the people, whether they live in the smallest state or the largest state. Um, and we want Republican votes to be able to count in Democratic states. We want Democratic votes to be able to count in Republican states. There are people who are in the minority party in a state who felt like their vote for president is never counted at all because immediately they know that they're going to lose and all of the electoral college votes from their state are going to go to the other party. But when you look at the popular vote total on election night, you want to be able to say that your vote is going towards advancing the uh, fortunes of your political candidate. And we know how to conduct popular elections. That's what we should be doing. The national popular vote allows us to accomplish that. And it's through the time-honored method of the states getting together to change uh, a system that is a hangover from the anti-democratic days of uh, the beginning of the republic and making the country into a more perfect union and more democratic. Is there any thought that passing the national popular vote would actually increase voter participation among voters oh, who are a minority? In their state? I, uh, I, I uh, really should have raised that before. Um, absolutely. If you compare voter turnout in, in the swing states, like Ohio and Florida, where all of the attention is, to voter turnout in safe states, um, the voter turnout in swing states averages 10 points higher hmm. than it is in the states where the electoral conclusion is uh, a foregone judgment because everybody knows where it's going to happen. I mean, why do voters turn out? They turn out because there's a competitive election, because there are parties and campaigns on the ground knocking on doors and urging people to go out and vote, and there's commercials and so on. But what we get is um, this total carpet bombing of people in a handful of states with commercials and, t and TV ads and uh, candidate visits. But then most of the country, it's just completely silent. Uh, and there's nothing going on because everybody knows exactly what's going to happen in, you know, Hawaii, it's going to be Democratic. In Alaska, it's going to be Republican. In Alabama, it's going to be Republican. In New York and New Jersey, it's going to be Democratic and so on. Uh, Jamie, thank so you. Go ahead. Basically, we're going to give ourselves the first national election in the history of the United States, that is going to be a very exciting moment. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. I know you've got to get off at this point, but we really appreciate your carving out 15 minutes to join the conversation today. Thank you so much. Delighted to be with you. Um, it, we're um, tuned to Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. It's 1030, and this is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guest in the studio this morning is Mark Brewer. He's the professor of political science at the University of Maine. We just said goodbye to Jamie Raskin. He's professor of law at American University, Washington College of Law, and a U.S. congressman representing Maryland's 8th District. Um, in a minute, we're going to be welcoming Patrick Rosensteel. He's uh, the CEO of Ainsley Shea, a Minneapolis-based public relations firm working to advance the national popular vote. Um, our topic today is the Electoral College, the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation by emailing us at downeast at lwvme.org. Put DF in the subject line, and we'll try to get your question on the air. Um, I understand that Patrick is on the line now. Patrick, welcome. Oh, thanks, Ann. Grateful to be here. So glad to have you join us. We saw your piece in the Maine Wire the other day explaining why Maine Republicans should love the National Popular Vote Compact. Why don't you summarize that for our listeners? Well, look, I mean, I may be a little biased. I'm, uh, you know, a, a conservative Republican trapped behind the blue wall in Minnesota. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we're the only state that voted for Walter Mondale for president. So my entire adult lifetime, I've cast ballots in every presidential election for every Republican candidate. And it's never once made a meaningful difference uh, under um, the current state-based winner-take-all system. And I just believe under a national popular vote system, while well, my voice uh, under the current system impacts 10 electors and barely because the Democrat always carries my state, under the national popular vote system, my Republican vote can impact 270 or more electors, guarantee the presidency to the candidate who make, gets the most popular votes in all 50 states in the District of Columbia, and really make every voter in America politically relevant in every presidential election. And I think that's a good idea because I'm not afraid of my ideas. Well, and how has that played out for Maine? Because we do split our electors, and we did give one to President Trump in the 2016 election. 
Yeah, well, and I think that's the first time, um, you know, all the millions of votes, Republican votes that have been cast in Maine. And this isn't a Republican or a Democrat idea. I just want to make sure everybody knows I'm here for policy reasons more than political reasons. But, you know, the truth is, is every Republican who's voted in the state of Maine over the last several presidential elections have gotten one electoral vote to show for it, you know. And, And so, you know, I believe if you're a Republican in Maine's second congressional district or first congressional district, um, you should matter in every presidential election. And I think, uh, you know, a Republican voter in Maine would have influence over 270 electoral votes, not just one per congressional district in the two at large. You know, I think that's true for a Democrat, too. And I, you know, I think it'll end false crises around the American presidency. I think it'll end a system where, um, you know, Republican and Democratic candidates for president get transactional with battleground state voters. That leads to you know, distorted public policy. And, you know, frankly, as a as a conservative Republican, uh, and I feel like a liberal Democrat in Oklahoma probably feels the same way that I do. <laughs> you know, I can't think of a single redeeming quality of the current system. And I think it's time for reform and the national popular vote interstate compact uh, to guarantee the presidency to the candidate who wins the most popular votes in all 50 states in the District of Columbia is the appropriate reform uh, because every voter should feel valued in presidential elections, no matter what state they live in. Contrast that, if you would, Pat, with other reform ideas that are on the table. We were talking in some um, earlier in the conversation about whether all the states should adopt a method like Maine's and Nebraska's or whether all the states should uh, choose their presidential electors by ranked choice voting with proportional representation. Are, Are those... Um, also viable ideas, or why is the... No, I don't think they deliver on the promise, right, Mm -hmm. of making every voter in every state politically relevant in every presidential election. I mean, just look at a congressional district system, right? Uh, You guys know that system better than anybody in the country. You know, Maine's second congressional district, it was a battleground congressional district in 2016. The first congressional district was completely ignored by the national campaigns, right? So, You know, what I think a congressional district system does, if you could wave a magic wand and every state adopted it, right, because it's up to every state to determine what they're going to do with their electors. That's a constitutional principle um, under Article 2, Section 1. You know, you go from 12 battleground states under the current state-based system, you know, to maybe 60 competitive congressional districts. In my home state, it would be the first. And then what the Rochester Mayo Clinic wants the Rochester Mayo Clinic is going to get from the American president because it happens to be a competitive battleground congressional district. So I think a congressional district system takes a bad system and makes it worse. Um, Only national popular vote, and in this case the interstate compact, which I support, only national popular vote makes every voter in every state politically valuable in every presidential election, and it's the only reform that delivers on that promise. Now, how, how do you respond to um, voters in, let's say, more rural, rural parts of the country who feel that they're losing an entitlement? Well, frankly, I think rural voters are the ones who are most damaged by the current system. I mean, when you think of the most rural states, you know, I think North Dakota, South Dakota, some other people think Vermont, you know, uh, and some of those New England states that are kind of rural in nature, um, right. Alaska, Hawaii. You know, all of those rural states are politically flyover states in the current system and politically ignored by the American president. So part of my impetus for being a full-throated advocate for the national popular vote interstate compact is to make a voter in Bismarck, North Dakota, as valuable to the American president as a voter in Boca Raton, Florida, right? So to me, if you want to give every rural voice in America political relevance in every presidential election, there's only one way to do that, and that's the National Popular Vote Compact. Huh. You have a question for Patrick, Mark? Well, I mean, I, 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 I think, first of all, I think there are some relatively serious constitutional questions about the vote, the interstate vote compact. I mean, I think if you want to go the direct popular vote for president, I think the, the way to do it would be amending the Constitution to do it. Um, so that's that's one. But... I think the second question is, is we've, as I've heard about a lot of the supporters of this say, that, well, it'll make all votes equal, which is true, but it's also often either stated or implied that all voters will then receive the an equal treatment from presidential candidates, which I'm not sure is true. I mean, wouldn't it still be the case 
that presidential candidates are going to favor certain states over others, just instead of it being battleground states, now it'll be the larger states in terms of population? I, I, if that's a question directed at me, I yeah. guess I would take the second part first. Go um, ahead. The second part is, like, so, for example, I mean, for every big state of California, for example, there's a Texas, okay? So, you, you know, the big states kind of balance each other off in presidential elections. And when you think about how people campaign for governors in first-past-the-post systems, they don't ignore rural or smaller areas of their states, right? So, for example, my friend was elected and reelected governor of the state of Minnesota and got crushed in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Rochester, Mankato, Duluth, and Bloomington, right? The big states of the state of Minnesota, okay? And he did that by really um, honing his campaign message to every voter across the state of Minnesota, not just sort of the urban voters in that situation. I would also point out that in the big cities, for example, that represents one-sixth of the voting population of the country, the big cities, the top 100 cities in this country. One-sixth of the population lives in rural America or outside of statistical metropolitan areas, okay? So there is not a single candidate in the world that's going to focus exclusively on one-sixth of the population and ignore the other sixth of the population that has to elect them to the office that they hold. So, you know, I think you know, we know how first-past-the-post systems are run in single-member districts where every voter in that district matters, and that's what national popular vote would promise. I'm not sure where the constitutional um, concerns come in, uh, giving a very clear read of Article 2, Section 1, which is 17 words that says each state shall appoint in such manner as uh, the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. Um, a constitutional amendment is not how Maine moved from its state-based winner-take-all law to the congressional district system. They did it through pure legislative statute, which is how every change of how electors have been awarded has been made in the history of the country. So, you know, the awarding of electors is a plenary power of the state legislature. It couldn't be more clear in case law since the founding of this country. And the national popular vote interstate compact simply asked states if they want to join other states in awarding their electoral votes and would pass constitutional muster in any court in this country, um, in, 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 well, not even in my opinion, uh, based on hundreds of years of case law. Patrick, do you think this is moving ultimately towards a constitutional amendment? I mean, is that the path we're on here? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think national popular vote is a very specific question to each of the various legislatures. Right. Twelve of them have already adopted it um, and not one has been thrown out. I mean, it's clearly a state statute. It's, it's clearly a constitutional statute. And it says when 270 electoral votes or states with 270 electoral votes adopt the bill, it triggers and awards the electors on the basis of the national popular vote. There's no need for a constitutional amendment. Um, the truth is, is this is the constitutionally appropriate approach because of the power under Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, and the power for states to form agreements amongst themselves in Article 1, Section 10. So I, I, there is no need for a constitutional amendment, and frankly, many of the more conservative voices that support the compact would oppose a constitutional amendment, mine included. Um, I don't change a city charter to fill a pothole. I use the power that exists within the city charter to fill that pothole. So you know, look, we've got our bill in front of three governors right now in Delaware, Colorado, and New Mexico, all of whom said they will sign the bill. That will add 18 electoral votes to the 172 we already have. We are before the Maine legislature right now. We'd love to see Maine enact the compact um, because, you know, we think it's in the best interest of Maine, but I'll leave that up to Mainers. Um, you guys can decide whether that's true or false. But Patrick, I can't think of a single constitutional objection uh, being a strict instructionist to the Constitution who simply reads it and has read the compact, I can't think of a single objection constitutionally to the National Popular Vote Compact and its approach. Patrick, that math went by me a little too fast. Could you tally up the sure. states one more time? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I talk quick sometimes. I apologize. Um, Twelve states with 172 electoral votes, we are already the law in those states, right? Yeah, and yeah. so to understand the compact, we need 270 electoral votes for it to trigger. We also have our bill right now. We just went through the Delaware House yesterday. So our bill is on the desk of three governors, 
nine electoral votes in Colorado, five electoral votes in New Mexico, and three electoral votes in Delaware, right? So we're in front of, I guess that's 17. That's 17 more electoral votes, you know, uh, to add to our 172 because the governors have made it clear that they will sign it. So that brings us to what? 189 electoral votes. And, and, um, and the you know, main would we're be well four. striking distance. Yep. So um, do you think that it's going to get harder to pass as we get closer to the 270? <laughs> well, I, you know, we started in 2006. Oh, it's been a while. Um, and I have been in 35 legislative chambers at least. I stopped counting. Um, so, you know, the truth is, is I don't think this has ever been easy, nor um, nor should it be, right? Uh, the burden of proof is on the proponents of change. Um, I can't think of a single redeeming quality of the current system. I don't think it gets any more or less difficult. And the only thing I can promise you is that I'm going to have my shoulder to the wheel until it's done, because I can't think of a more important systemic reform in American politics than moving to a national popular vote for president, because the current state-based system leads to bad public policy and transactional policy with battleground state voters, and it also leads to false crises around the American presidency. And I think we need a system where the candidate with the most votes is elected president of the United States, so that every voter feels valued in the outcome, so that we quit having this discussion about whether American presidents are legitimate or illegitimate. I believe the current president won legitimately under the current system as it's defined today, right? And I believe that the current president may have won under a national popular vote election. He ran a completely different campaign focusing on the battleground states. But I'd just as soon have that kind of election so that we can get moving forward as a country, solving some of the very difficult problems we face. And when you have a systemic problem, I focus on systemic reform, and I'll be here till it's done. That's an interesting point that you made there at the end. And before I come back to that, I just want to do a quick station break. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Mark Brewer, professor of political science at the University of Maine, and Patrick Rosenstiel, CEO of Ainsley Shea, a Minneapolis-based public relations firm working to advance the national popular vote. He's also a Republican activist. And um, we're taking your questions or comments by email today. If you want to put your question on the air, you can still email, email us at downeast at lwvme.org. Put DF in the subject line, and we'll try to get your question on the air. Um, I know you've only got a few more minutes, Patrick, so I just wanted to... Uh, cycle back around on the point you made the last time, because sometimes when reforms like this are talked about, it's talked about in reaction to the thing that just happened under a completely different set of rules. And your point there was that if Donald Trump had been running under the National Popular Vote Compact, we can't say for sure he would have lost because he lost the popular vote under another set of rules, right? And I see Mark yeah. acknowledging that, too. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, let, let Mark, Mark's been no, a silent I, I just think it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredibly important point that has to be made here, is that we, we candidates run their campaigns under the rules that are in place, and you can't assume that they would run this, the same campaign under a different set of rules. In fact, it would be silly for them to do so. So certainly both President Trump and Secretary Clinton would have almost certainly run very different campaigns under a national popular vote. Go ahead, Patrick. Yeah, no, um, uh, agreed. I mean, under the current system, both campaigns spent 96% of their political resources in the general election, meaning their time and money in just 12 battleground states. I mean, in NASCAR, you don't drive to win every race, right? You drive to the points to secure the cup at the end. So when you do systemic reform, you change the incentives to campaign. And national popular vote, when it amplifies the voice, I think, of every voter in every flyover state, I, I think it's undoubtedly going to deliver on that promise that it amplifies vis-a-vis -vis the current system. And, and, and I, I concede the point. I don't know what equally means, but, but, but certainly it will amplify the voice of every flyover voter. That's going to change the incentive to campaign, and it'll change the outcome of every campaign. Now, you know, whether Donald Trump would have won a national popular vote election or Hillary Clinton is anybody's guess. But certainly we don't know what that result would have been unless we ran yep. under that system. I um, was spending a few minutes with uh, a young voter, you know, very young voter who yeah. just come to, came to Maine from Utah, where he 
was a Democratic voter in a totally Republican state and felt that his vote was a total throwaway in the presidential election. Um, and probably there are Republican voters in Maine who may be feeling that way, too. Yeah, well, I even think Republican voters in Utah feel that way, right? Because how much you win or use, lose Utah by as a Republican, you know, doesn't matter under the current system. If you understand a national popular vote for president, when the result, the 270 electoral votes are guaranteed to the candidate who wins the national popular vote, you know, how much you win or lose every state now becomes politically relevant. So in Utah, where they have shrinking participation rates, you know, that's because Republicans even understand before we select a nominee that the Republicans going to win the state of Utah. And so you see depressed participation on both sides of the political aisle. So, you know, again, it's about amplifying every individual's voice by giving them a say over where 270 electoral votes are going to go. And I can promise you, as a Republican in Minnesota, I'm going to be making get out the vote calls in my precinct, not the closest battleground state of Wisconsin. Right. Because if we can get to 48, 49, 47.5 percent of the vote in Minnesota, every one of those votes can be critical to the outcome. So this is this idea that Maine is giving away their votes by joining the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact shows a complete misunderstanding of the national popular vote. What you're really doing is amplifying every main voter's voice and giving them access and power over 270 electoral votes. So, you know, don't let fear get in the way of what is true. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that, that's, I, I guess, my message is when you amplify every vote, every vote becomes important. And I know that because I live in the ten, a land of 10,000 treatment centers, <laughs> Minnesota, and 10,000 recounts, right? Um, very closely divided races statewide, where there are a lot of Republican voters there if we get our shoulder to the wheel and turn them out every four years. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. I know we promised to let you off by 1050, and here we are. The time went by so fast. But thank you so much for joining the conversation today. Um, we really appreciate your making time to be on the conversation. Oh, yeah, you're welcome and grateful for everything you're doing out there. Thanks for your help, and thanks for giving us a channel to discuss this. Thank you. So, so, Mark, what do you make of it all? We've had uh, reflections from both sides, and here we are with the last 10 minutes all to ourselves. Well, I mean, I, I guess I guess, certainly I think the idea, the argument that a national popular vote, whether it be through constitutional amendment or through an interstate voter compact, will certainly go a long way towards making every vote count um, equally, right? Um, but I don't think there's any doubt about that. I guess I would – I'm a little – I'd be a little cautious in saying that while every vote will count equally, that doesn't mean that every place on the map will be courted equally. Um, I do think that candidates will still concentrate, uh, maybe, maybe, I mean, today they concentrate in battleground states. Under this system, I suspect they would concentrate in states on the basis of population, because even if, you know, we're now a Republican who's never going to set foot in California, or a Democrat for that matter either. Now, even if you get only 45% of the vote in California, it's still a massive number of votes. Um, that doesn't mean they're going to have a message that's California Republican-specific as opposed to Utah Republican. But I, I, the idea that candidates are now going to be jumping all over the country campaigning and stopping in, you know, I think someone mentioned Bismarck. I don't, I don't think that's – I'd be cautious. I don't know that that's going to happen. Mark, are you up to date on the state of play of the national popular vote in Maine right now? Do you know where it stands? I do not. I know that I know that it's um, before the legislature. I know there are hearings. I know that I believe – and I should say I qualify that. I believe the relevant committee voted 7-6 ought not to pass, but that it's also going to go forward to the full legislature, and that's where my knowledge stops. I have no idea what – when that vote scheduled for, and I have no idea of kind of the state of play of that. So if you were uh, somebody living in Maine right now, what should people do to learn more about this or to get engaged on the question? Well, I mean, I certainly think that you could um, you could go to the legislature's uh, webpage and find, see if you could track down the, the testimony on that, that hearing. Um, you certainly could contact your legislator to see what their thinking is on this. Um, I don't know if either party addresses that in their platform, but you could check to see if they do do that. Um, I think it is. I think it's a partisan issue right now, but that's only because anytime you change the rules, it affects 
each party differently. That doesn't mean that that effect would be the same 20 years from now. Those things change over time. Um, but th there is, anytime you change the rules, you have the potential to change winners and losers. So, I mean, I, I think voters should educate themselves on this issue because as both, uh, both of our, our other guests pointed out, this is a, a huge systemic change, right? It would be a fundamental change on how we select the president of the United States. Um, it's a big deal, and people should uh, educate themselves and get involved on that. We've got a few minutes left, and one of the things that I'm finding sort of interesting in the political debate right now is the changing meaning of the word we're a republic or we're a democracy and the extent to which populism and direct popular election is being read by some people as antithetical to the concept that we're a republic, which kind of brings us back around to your states' rights Thing from the beginning of the conversation. So just talk about the evolution of direct popular election in American politics a little bit. Well, I mean, a, a republic doesn't preclude direct popular election, right? A republic a republic is, is what we would today refer to as representative democracy is a republic, right? A republic is voters selecting someone to hold office to make policy on their behalf, right? That's a republic or a representative democracy. Um, a direct democracy are the people themselves making the choices on public policy, and they're very different things. Um, the founders uh, had zero interest in direct democracy. Um, I would tend to agree with them. Direct democracy scares me to death. Um, I, I don't like direct democracy at the state level in terms of uh, referendum and initiatives. I, I think that it almost always results in bad policy. I think that we don't seen, go down that path because we're uh, having that show next month. Uh, <laughs> so so I, I, I'm, I, I, direct democracy is not something I'm a fan of, um, but direct popular vote does not fly in the face of a rep small R Republican form of government. In fact, it's it's it's, it's co correlates very well with it. So I'm so I mean in that sense, and going back to what you said earlier, is the electoral college sort of the last vestige of high elected office where it is not popularly elected? Uh, in the United States, certainly yeah. at the federal level. I mean, obviously precluding the judiciary, which is a whole different kettle right, of right. fish. But yes, I mean, we, we've amended the Constitution to allow uh, direct election of United States senators. Um, I would, again, I do see some value in having a, having a state involvement in selection of the president um, as the one true kind of national representative. But that being said, I can also see value in direct popular vote. I just believe relatively strongly that if we move in that direction, that it should be done by constitutional amendment, not by um, an interstate vote compact, which, again, I, I, I'm not a constitutional law expert. I'm a partisan about... elections expert. But I, I'm not... I'm not so sure that the constitutionality of this is as cut and dried, yes, as, as others think. As Jamie think. and Pat were saying. Yeah, I, but, I, don't, I don't know that. But what about the argument that they did bring forward, that every time we've made significant amendments in our Constitution to more deeply enfranchise people, whether it was women's suffrage or whether it was um, direct election of the, the Senate, that the measures that eventually brought pressure on an amendment to the U.S. Constitution began by states taking action. Well, that's absolutely correct. I mean, the whole idea of states as laboratories of democracy, right? That's fundamental there. I think the thing that's different here than it is in, say, the direct election of senators or allowing um, women to vote is that you're, select, you're, you're doing this if you go down the road of an interstate voter compact. You're doing this not by yourself as a state, but in conjunction with other states. And then unless all 50 states join in, in opposition to some other states. And us, let's say Maine, um, allowing women to vote for governor, that doesn't affect any other state, right? But if 30 states sign up for the interstate voter compact, and 20 don't, um, that does theoretically impact the other states. Well, I'm afraid that's going to have to be the last word on the subject for today. Um, and we're going to wrap it up this morning and thank our guests. Um, Mark Brewer was with me in the studio, professor of political science at the University of Maine. Jamie Raskin, professor of law at American University, Washington College of Law and a U.S. congressman representing Maryland's 8th di District. And also with us on the phone was Patrick Rosenstiel, CEO of Ainsley Shea, a Minneapolis-based public relations firm, 
Um, Patrick is also a conservative Republican activist, and we've been listening to the Democracy Forum this morning, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer this morning at WERU, and thank you to our listeners. We'll be um, continuing conversation on participatory democracy with our show on April 19th, which will be about citizens' initiatives. We'll see you here then. Thanks a lot. Support for WERU comes from our generous listeners. Thank you.